don't ever feel like that, uh, well, you look around and you think, you know, we, we've got a small church. Don't ever feel like that just because your church is small doesn't mean you can't do anything for God. Amen. You know, in the natural, it may seem small, but from God's perspective, you're very big. He sees you as having a tremendous amount of potential to do things for Him and His kingdom. See, you, th there are churches everywhere. Yeah, down here, you drive, and it's just a church here, a church there, like old McDonald's farm. Here a church, there a church, everywhere a church. That's the way it is in Dayton. That's the way, everywhere you go, that's the way it is. And the thing is, you can have a whole lot of churches, and you can have, um, well, a lot of people can stand up and talk about Jesus. They can even preach salvation through Jesus, but sometimes there's something missing. And a lot of times what you have is just religion, not the relationship that you need. And it's not just a personal relationship you need, you also need a congregational relationship with Jesus because that firmly establishes the congregational relationship among each other. So it's very important uh, to keep pressing into God and be encouraged. Um, you know, when I was praying about the services here, you know, God, what do you want me to teach? What do you want me to, to, uh, to share? He began giving to me what I needed to share. And we're going to start this morning in Matthew chapter 28. Matthew chapter 28. And I know that there are several different versions of the Bible. I get that. I, I read from the King James. So I don't know what you're reading. Because um, sometimes things are a little bit different. But nevertheless, Matthew 28. Now Jesus has been crucified. And he is getting ready to ascend back up to the Father. And he's sharing some uh, parting words with the 11 remaining disciples. And ultimately this, what he shared with them, you know, others received it as well. But he said in verse 18, all power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you and lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. So what happens is, um, you have a lot of people who are very focused on getting people saved. And, and I understand that, that, and we should do that. But it's the next part. Teaching them to observe all things that I've spoken, what I've said to you. In other words, making disciples. And there's where we fall short too often, is making them disciples. It's one thing to lead people to Jesus Christ. And, and I've heard this before. You have these crusades, uh, and you know, all these people come to accept Jesus Christ as Savior. And then the preacher says, now folks, you need to find yourself a good Bible-believing church. Well, what does that mean? You know, you can walk into almost any church it's got a cross out front or whatever, just ask them, do you folks believe the Bible? Well, you know what they're going to say. Yeah. They're going to tell you, well, yeah, we believe the Bible. And then that person's going to think, whoa, this is great. I, I found me a good church, a Bible-believing church. The truth of the matter is, not all churches are truly Bible-believing churches. If they were, 
you would not have all these different denominations. Amen. It wouldn't exist. I remember, well, this morning, the, uh, during the Sunday school class, we were talking about, you know, uh, a spiritual warfare and the way that, you know, devils will lie and so on and so forth. And I can remember, um, you know, my pastor, Pastor Dave Roberson, he shared how that in a conversation with somebody, this person was saying, well, you know, our church is, is studying spiritual warfare. And uh, the first thing that we're studying is the occult and how the occult operates and so forth. And Pastor Dave said, I thought all Christians knew the occult was of the devil. <laughs> you know, why would you want to spend so much time studying that? He said, if you really want to understand how Satan moves, then go into all these churches that have stopped teaching the baptism of the Holy Spirit with the evidence of speaking in tongues uh -huh. and ask them, why do you not any longer teach this? Uh -huh. He said, you will uncover a master plan of Satan to pull people away from the power and the teaching ability of the Holy Spirit. Amen. And, this is, and so therefore you can go into a whole lot of churches and ask, do you believe the Bible? Well, yeah, we believe the Bible. Do you teach the Bible? Well, yeah, we teach the Bible. Okay, then, um, well, tell me about tongues. Well, we don't believe that. Well, well tell me about um, laying out of hands. Well, you know, we don't believe that either. All right, well, tell me about divine healing. Oh, well, you know, no, that, that's passed away too. Well, tell me about the ministry of the apostles. Well, they don't minister any longer. Uh, what about the prop? No, they don't minister. Prophets don't minister anymore. Well, who does minister? Well, you got the pastor, and you have the evangelist who goes around preaching. Then you have the teacher in the Sunday school class. And that's, seriously, that is how some churches and denominations believe. I was raised in one of those denominations. Jesus says, teach them to observe the things that I have taught you. Now go over to Ephesians. And here in Ephesians, um, not going to be a long time here, but just go to uh, chapter 2, Ephesians chapter 2. Now, Ephesus was a Gentile city. And so you have a lot of people that had come to accept Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And the Apostle Paul is writing this letter and he says, pick it up in verse 19. Now, therefore, you are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. Well, what's he saying here? He's saying, now that you Gentiles have accepted Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, you are welcomed into the household of God. You're now a member of God's family. But along with that, he says you're built upon, or spiritually you grow and mature through the foundation of the apostles and prophets and Jesus Christ is the chief cornerstone. Well, what does that mean built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets? It's what you're holding in your hand right now, the Word of God. So we could simplify it this way, that you're now, now that you're born again, you're a member of the household of God. You're a member of God's family. You're His child. And just as all children in a house will grow, you too can grow spiritually but your growth is dependent upon the Word of God, and Jesus Christ is the cornerstone of the Word of God. Amen. You know, the Word made flesh. 
Now here's what's interesting. In any home that has children, you can have, and, and I'm sure many of you have uh, seen this in your own lives, where over here you have a mom and dad, and they want to make sure that the kids have, you know, their, their vegetables and the meat and, you know, salads, I mean, whatever, because they want the children to be well-nourished. They might even give the kids, you know, vitamins in addition to the food. But then you may have a family here on the other side where it's just a steady diet of McDonald's and candy and sugar-laden sodas and so on and so forth. Well, those children, yeah, the natural process is that the body gets bigger, but they're malnourished compared to this other family. Why is that? Because in this other family, in that household, they're feeding the kids what you would call a well-balanced diet. Uh -huh. But in this household over here, they're just, the parents are just giving whatever that the kids want that will keep the kids quiet, et cetera, and so forth. And let me use scripture. They're giving the kids what will satisfy their itching ears. So you have these kids over here who are malnourished, and then the kids over on the other side, they are well-nourished. Okay, that is an image of the church today. Well, the body of Christ. Because you have churches that are going to deliver the word of God, and then you have churches, they're just going to do whatever they do and say we had church. But what's interesting is that when the kids get done eating all the hamburgers and the fries and the candy and so forth, their bellies will be full, but not of the right stuff. So in the, in the hamburger and fries church, when the service is over, their, their bellies are full. You know what I'm saying? And they walk out, boy, we had a great service. Well, great, you know, we love our church, love our pastor. Everything's great. But yet, they're not being built up. They're not growing the way they should. You know, if you just stand up and read John 3:16, every service, that's the word of God. It is truth. So there's a little bit of nourishment that's going out. You understand the concept there? Yes. But see, we need more than that. We have to have it, and here's the problem. If, uh, if you don't know how to get into the Word of God and study the Word of God, then you don't know how to feast on the Word of God the right way. Amen. Now, a lot of people, they don't like desserts. Well, some people do. And I'm one of those people. <laughs> I like desserts. However, I want to eat my meal before my dessert. And I knew one person, I forget his name, he always wanted to have dessert first. And somebody asked him, so why do you do that? He said, well, I want to make sure I've got room for it. <laughs> I was like, hmm, i got to think about that one. <laughs> but, I, you know, if you're gonna, for me, if you're going to have dessert, you have it at the end. In other words, there's an order. Now, here's how I like to eat. When I go to a restaurant, if I'm going to have a salad, I want my salad first, and then whatever the, the meal is, I'll eat that. And then I'll have dessert if I'm going to have dessert. In other words, there's an order. Let me say it another way. I have a line-upon-line line way of eating my meal. Well, when it comes to the Word of God, if you don't understand how to feast in a line-upon-line line fashion from Scripture then you might not be getting things in the order that you need them. Amen. 
And he says here, you know, you're built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Well, that's, that's true. But if I'm built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, how do I go about being built upon that foundation? Well, if you look over, in fact, I'll tell you what, I'm going to give you an example of something. Turn to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And I want to read a verse to you that we'll come back to a little bit later. I was raised um, Southern Baptist. And I mean, I just, my whole life, that's all I knew. And one thing's for sure. I mean, you know, we did not believe in being baptized in the Holy Ghost with the evidence of speaking in tongues. We did not believe in, in you know, raising your hands in church when you praise the Lord. We did not believe in laying on of hands. And when it comes to healing, the way we would pray is, Father, if it be thy will. Well, we didn't know that it was God's will. You know, by Jesus' stripes, you were healed. God sent his word and healed and so on and so forth. So we would pray, you know, God, if it be thy will, because divine healings passed away. And, you know, the age of miracles is gone, so on and so forth. That, that's what we believe. But we were told, I mean, in no uncertain terms, you must be born again. Jesus died for your sins, shed his blood. You've got to be washed in the blood. You've got to be born again or you're not going to heaven. I mean, that was drilled into us. So we knew that part. But in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, I look in verse 8. Charity never faileth, but whether there be prophecies, they shall fail. Whether there be tongues, they shall cease. Whether there be knowledge, it shall vanish away. All right, that's one of the verses, like it was like maybe the, the, the king verse that we use to say, you see there, tongues have ceased. Well, then somebody would ask the question. Well, in verse 10, it says, you know, uh, well, in verse 9, for we know in part, we prophesy in part, but when that which is perfect has come, then that which is in part shall be done away. And we say, well, that which is perfect has come, and so tongues have ceased. And then the question, okay, well, what is that which is perfect? And they would say, well, it's the Bible. Now that we have the Bible, that which is perfect has come. Well, I just bought into that. That's how I was raised. It was presented to us, you know, constantly. And so that's what I believed until years later. And I start looking at this. It, what happened, I ended up in a church that believed in tongues, believed in gifts, believed in healings, believed in miracles. And I'm hearing tongues and interpretation. I'm seeing people get healed. And I'm thinking, this is not supposed to be happening. Because I was raised not to believe in this. Well, I'm thinking something's not right here. Because these people are preaching Jesus, be born again. And yet this other is happening as well. Well, I go back in here to uh, 1 Corinthians 13. I'm looking at this. And, uh, you know, by this time, I had been filled with the Holy Spirit with the evidence of speaking in tongues. So I realized something's wrong somewhere. The part about being born again, that what we heard, that was right. But this other that we were taught, I can't be right. And I'm looking at this, and when that which is perfect has come, and they told us, well, that's the Bible. And I got to thinking, okay, what Bible? What? No, this is the question nobody asked. What Bible? You mean this Bible in our hands, the King James? Well, if that's the case, that means that tongues existed up until the 1600s. Oh, no, no, tongues passed away with the apostles. Well, then what Bible are you talking about? Nobody brought this up. Nobody talked about it from that perspective. But there's a flow in this. We're going to get to it here in a little bit. 
But I want you to look over in Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20. You see, the Bible says that in the beginning was the Word. In the beginning was the Word. Now from that perspective, we know that in the beginning was the Word. Everything began with the Word. That's the foundation. So that should tell me that for me to grow the way that I'm supposed to spiritually, it has to start with the Word. There are people out there who, um, all right, let me say it like this. There are churches that place more emphasis on experience than the Word. Well, we had a great service today. Really? Well, what happened? Well, people ran, shouted, jumped, and you know, all this other. Okay, well, tell me about the sermon. Oh, we never had one of those. And week after week, it's like that. Well, you need to grow. Just because you, just because you come to church doesn't mean that you're growing. The, I eat every day of the week. You, you understand what I'm saying here? I need the word every day of the week. Now, in Acts chapter 20, in verse 17, it says, uh, the Apostle Paul, uh, and from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church. And when they were come to him, he said unto them, you know, that from the first day that I came unto you, uh, that I came into Asia, after what manner I have been with you at all seasons, serving the Lord with all humility of mind, with many tears and temptations, which befell me by the lying. Of, you know, he, he goes on and he's explaining to them and re reminding them of what happened when he was with them. Well, <laughs> as he continues to teach, and he's explaining to these folks, this is kind of like a, um, like a, a parting message that he's sharing with them. And he gets down here to, uh, well, let's jump down to verse 28. He says, take heed therefore, now he's speaking to the leaders, and he says, Take heed therefore unto yourselves and unto all the flock over which the Holy Ghost has made you overseers to feed the church of God, which he hath purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departing shall, grievous, shall um, grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock, and of your own selves shall men arise, speaking perverse things, to draw away disciples after them. In other words, what he's saying is, when I leave, there are others that are going to try to come in and influence you away from what I have shared. And then he says here, um, again in verse 30, also of your own selves. Now he's, here you have this big group of leaders. And he stands up and he says, there are, in other words, he's saying, there are some of you sitting here today, this is what you're going to do. And I'm warning the whole bunch of you, watch out for this. Also of your own selves shall men arise, speaking perverse things, to draw away disciples after them. Therefore watch and remember that by the space of three years I cease not to warn every, uh, everyone night and day with tears. And now, brethren, I commend you to God and to the word of His grace, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among all them which are sanctified. So as much as Paul had taught and all the truth that he had taught, what he says is, I commend you to God and to His Word. Not to me, I commend you to God and to His Word. So therefore, we need to understand that the building up comes from the Word of God. It doesn't come from preaching. 
Now, I know, you know, the sower sows the word. I understand the preaching aspect of it. But if the preaching isn't based on the word, or if it's not a, a clear contextual use of the word, then what good is it that, you know, what, the sermon, what good is it? Now, look over in, um, look over in Mark chapter 14. Mark chapter 14. And take a look at... Um, well, I'll tell you what. Let me just kind of summarize this for the sake of time. When Jesus is ministering to the apostles, what we're seeing is the Word made flesh ministering. Yeah. And when he gives them instructions about what they are to do, what we see then is it is the embodiment of the Word speaking to them telling them what they need to do from that point on. As he's giving these instructions, well, in fact, I'll tell you, Mark 4. Let's go to Mark 4. I said 14, but let's go to Mark 4. I want you to see this. Mark chapter 4. If you pick it up in verse 14, he says, The sower soweth the word. Now, see, we look at that and we think, Yep, amen, praise God. But you have to remember, back then, they didn't have the New Testament written yet. They only had the Old Testament. Prophetically, what he is speaking to us, the sower soweth the word. We have the word of God in book format. The sower soweth the word. And he goes through and he explains that these are they by the wayside where the word is sown, but when they have heard, Satan cometh immediately and taketh the word that was sown in their hearts. He taketh away the word. He can't reach in, but he has to do it through circumstances. In other words, he has to do it through distractions. One of the distractions is teaching that draws you away from the truth that's recorded in the Word of God. And he says, um, and he goes on and talks about, um, you know, there are people, you know, you've, some of the words sown on stony ground, you know, the people hear it, they receive it with gladness, but they have no root in themselves. And for a while everything is okay, but when affliction or persecution arises for the word's sake, immediately they're offended. He had some that are sown among thorns, that thorns, they hear the word, but the cares of this world, the deceitfulness of riches, the lust of other things entering it is choking the word, choking the word. Now, all right, have you ever felt choked? What you can't breathe. So what's happening in, he's, he's essentially saying that when you get distracted to all the stuff that's going on in the world, it is choking the life of the word from flowing in you. And instead, you're focusing on all the problems, all the issues, all the wants, all the desires, all the gotta-haves, so on and so forth. But then he says in verse 20, These are they which are sown on good ground, such as hear the word and receive it, and bring forth fruit, some thirtyfold, some sixty, and some a hundred. Now, the same story is repeated in Matthew chapter 13. Now, turn over there real, real quickly. We'll just go toward the end of it. Matthew chapter 13. And then over in Matthew 13, just look at verse um, 23. But he that received seed into the good ground is he that heareth the word and understandeth it, which also beareth fruit and bringeth forth some a hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty. Well, this same story is repeated over in Luke chapter 8. So we go over to Luke chapter 8. Matthew, Mark, and Luke each give us kind of a, a different perspective 
of this teaching, but it's the same teaching. Luke chapter 8, verse 15, Jesus says, But that on the good ground are they which in an honest and good heart, having heard the word, keep it and bring forth fruit with patience. Now, if we take uh, Mark chapter 14, uh, Matthew chapter 13, and Luke chapter 8, all three of these uh, renditions of the story, and we, we put them all together, here's how it can sound. The sower soweth the word of God. The word that is sown in good ground, which is a person with an honest, good, and teachable heart, who hears the word, and after having heard it, receives it, keeps it in his heart and mind, and is diligent to understand it, will, with patience, bear and bring forth the fruit of all that the Word can produce. So it's not just a matter of hearing it, it's a matter of engaging with it. So you can have people come into a church service and they can hear the Word, but when they leave, it's not working in them the way it could. When Paul was ministering in Berea, the Bible says that they were more noble, the Jews there were more noble than the Jews in Thessalonica because the Jews in Berea, they searched the scriptures daily to see if these things Paul was teaching were true. Well, it's the same thing for us. We have been, when I say we, I'm talking, generally speaking, in the, in the body of Christ, we have been lulled in this, into this um, false sense of security to believe that if we just show up at church, a good church, you know, like this one, a good church, we hear a good sermon, and then we leave, come back Sunday night, get another good sermon, come back on Wednesday night, get some more word. We think that's it. We think, okay, I'm doing okay. Well, yeah, you're, you're at a place of maybe uh, some kind of spiritual stability, but the, the growth isn't there. Now, some people might, might say, well, you calling me a backslider? I'm not calling you a backslider. What I'm saying is the growth isn't there. Right. Now, you can claim the growth is there. It's not. Uh -huh. Jesus said, I just read this, this combination of those three stories. When you sow the word and you do everything that is required, you receive it, you keep it, you understand it, you pursue it, so on and so forth. He says, then and only then yeah. will you bear the fruit of everything the word can produce. Amen. So then... Let's put it like this. If the word's not producing, if you're not seeing the fruit of what is, is promised in the word, then you know what? Maybe you're not feasting on it the way you should. Maybe you're not getting into it the way you should. Because God can't lie. And if God says the sower sows the word, and if you follow this process that I'm telling you, concerning sowing the word, then you're going to bear the fruit. That's a promise from God. And he can't lie. That means it will happen no matter what. It will happen. Yeah. Now, when it comes to the whole aspect of um, the word and under this understanding the word, Psalm, you don't have to turn to this. I'll just read it to you. Psalm 119 verse 11 says, Thy word have I hid in mine heart that I might not sin against thee. Now, here's just a simple illustration, and you could preach on that sermon all day long. So here's somebody, a Christian, somebody who's truly born again, truly filled with the Holy Spirit, and they're saying, man, I just, you know, I, I just keep struggling with this sin, keep struggling with this particular habit, this whatever. You ask the question, well, is the Word hid in your heart? Oh, I believe God. Yeah, but is the Word hid, hid in your heart? Is it stored up in there? Oh, well, I go to church. 
Well, and, I, and I take my Bible when I go to church. Yeah, well, beyond that, well, yeah, I mean, I believe God. I believe the Bible. They give you these beat-around-the-bush answers. What does God say? Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. The power of God's word in us, built up in us, the Word of God is the life of God, and it carries the life of God into us. And the more that we have the Word of God in us, not just passively through a sermon on Sundays, but the more the Word of God is in us, the power of that holy life of the Word of God in us, in a Christian, brings about a conviction even to the thoughts and intents of the mind so that we're now confronted with the reality of, no, I'm not going to do that. Oh, I used to do that, but I'm not doing that anymore. He's telling you right here, when you put the word in you, it becomes a weapon against sin. Amen. So therefore, if you have, you know, it, during the Sunday school class today, one of the things that was brought up is how that there are some Christians out there, they want to blame everything on the devil. You know, well, oh, oh, he's got a spirit of ugly. Oh, he's got a spirit of this. He's got a spirit. Everybody's got a spirit of something. You know what I'm saying? That's not true. Now, in some cases, yeah, you know, you've got some things going on there that are demonically related. But just because somebody is not acting a specific type of way doesn't mean they've got demons and devils. Well, a lot of times we're trying to cast the devil out of somebody when what they really need is the word to be hid in their heart. God says, thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Okay, this is a promise. So therefore, if somebody is struggling with some kind of a sin, instead of trying to cast out some kind of devil or something, you tell them, get in the word. You need to get in the word and strength, the anointing that's in the Word will couple with the anointing of the Holy Spirit on the inside, the anointing of God's life on the inside of you, and it's going to help strengthen you to say no every time the temptation rises up. Amen. You don't have to keep being like this. Amen. And I've heard Christians say things like, well, you know, I just can't help myself. Well, no, you can help yourself. Thy Word have I hid. You can help yourself. Amen. Well, it, it's just the way God made me. No, he did. God has never made anybody to go out and sin. That, that's just, it's just not true. It's crazy. Amen. Well, what's dumb is that I used to buy into some of those excuses years ago. It's like, well, yeah, I guess, you know, God is, and well, I guess if they can't help it, well, I guess. It, no, no, uh-uh, not according to the Word of God. See, in another place, God says, I'm holy, you be holy. Now, if it weren't possible to be holy in every aspect of our life, everything from thoughts to actions to speech to everything, if it weren't possible, he would never say do it. Amen. And then you see in uh, Psalm 119, verse uh, 130, it says, The entrance of thy words giveth light, it giveth understanding unto the simple. That word simple means basically the person who's uh, not yet fully educated, not yet, uh, doesn't yet fully understand the things of, of God, and so on and so forth. All right. The entrance of thy words giveth light, it giveth understanding unto the simple. I had somebody one time uh, tell me, well, there are some things in the Bible that, uh, you know, we will never understand. There's some things in the Bible that God has made secret on purpose, and we'll not understand it until we get to heaven. And I'm thinking, wait a second, doesn't the Bible say that all Scripture, all Scripture, all scripture has been given by inspiration of God and is profitable for our spiritual growth and development to bring about correction. So here we see the entrance of thy words giveth light, it giveth understanding unto the simple. So therefore, 
People who say things like, well, I just don't understand the Bible. I just don't understand the Bible. Yeah, well, why don't you just get into the Bible and guess what? Pretty soon you're going to start having an understanding of what is in Scripture. But you've got to get into it. Well, I just don't understand the King James. Do you know what's interesting is that, okay, what year is this? The first real um, version, non-King James version of the Bible didn't come around until about 150, 180 years ago. Now what that means is the King James was working really well for a whole long time. Now some of these versions that I have researched, there's no way they're of God. There is no way they are of God. But yet if it says Bible on it, Christians, they'll just buy everything. Some uh, versions of the Bible, they've left things out that are supposed to be in there. If you, anyway, I don't want to go off on a tangent. But if you just keep reading, if you, but I can't pronounce all those words, all those names. You know, I don't think anybody can pronounce all those names. But the entrance of thy words giveth light. Amen. Even if you mispronounce some of the names and so forth, the entrance of it, entrance, the sower sows the word. The entrance of it, the more you put it in, the more you come to a place of understanding. Because if you're a Christian, you have the life of God on the inside of you. And the word of God is the life of God in written form. So you put it in, you put it in. And the life of the word is compatible with the life of our born again spirit. They start working together. And we end up having a place, a, a position of, of being able to understand. So just saying, well, I just can't understand all that. Well, I'm not very educated. Well, I'm, no, I'm, it, it, that doesn't work anymore. Not for me. Years ago, I would have believed on some of those things. Well, okay, you have an excuse. No, there is no excuse. There's no excuse for us. See, we talk about we want revival. We want to see an outpouring of the Holy Spirit. It's not going to be based upon what we want. It's going to be based upon the establishment of the foundation of the Word of God. The first place there's an outpouring and the first place there's a revival is on the inside of each one of us. And then we have that own personal outpouring revival in our lives. We come together as a congregation. It starts moving within the church. And then you know what? You don't have to worry about what kind of an outreach program can we develop to get the people in our community. You just live it. You just walk it. You just do it. You just be it like Jesus was. Amen. And you know what's going to happen? You're going to have a revival. It's going to happen. Yeah. But it all goes back to the foundation of the word. We're built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. You know, we, uh, we talk about the whole thing of wanting to have uh, authority over demons. Well, the Bible says we do. But if you don't understand that authority, like the, 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 uh, this morning, the Sunday school lesson, talking about all these wacky teachings out there about you know, demons, there was a major Christian publication, major Christian publication, published an article written by this preacher. And this preacher said that at Halloween, every bag of Halloween candy has a demon. Every single, uh, seriously, every single bag of Halloween candy. And if you buy that bag of candy and you bring it home, you're bringing demons in your home. And I read that and I thought, how on God's green earth can a, a publication of integrity want to publish something? Who gave the authority, the, the okay to publish it? Because I started doing some research. I thought, this, this is dumb. And I started doing some research on how much candy gets sold in the United States at, at Halloween. And millions, 
of bags of candy every single Halloween. So let's just say, just for the sake of teaching, that it's, it's uh, 10 million. Now remember, every grocery store sells bags of Halloween candy. Mm -hmm. And you go into um, uh, like, the, like Sam's Club and Costco, I mean, all these places all over the place, your Walgreens, and they're all selling Halloween candy. They're piled up with bags of Halloween candy. So 10 million bags a year in the United States. And that, that's not an outlandish figure. So 10 million bags a year times how many years? So you know what that sounds to me like? It sounds to me like all the demons are tied up dealing with Halloween candy. <laughs> so I don't have to worry about casting them out of anybody. They're all into Halloween candy. <laughs> and then it's like, okay, well, what happens when you eat all the candy and the candy's gone? I mean, do the demons leave or do they just stay in your home? And then next Halloween, we've got a whole other batch of demons. I don't know about you, but if I was a demon, I would not want to be assigned, you know, to, to candy bag detail. I want to be out tormenting people. Well, see, this person taught that, and I'm telling you, there are people going to buy into it and believe it. If you don't understand what the Word has to say about spiritual warfare, now I'm talking a contextual use of the Word. If you don't understand that, how in the world are you ever going to be able to exercise authority as a Christian? I remember one time I was talking to a pastor and uh, the whole subject of you know, dealing with demons and casting out devils and so forth. He said, um, oh, I, I wouldn't want to be doing that. I, I don't want to get involved in any of that. And I wondered, well, why not? And, and he said, well, because you go casting them out, you don't know what they're going to do. They might get all over you. And I'm thinking, wait a second. Have you not read the Bible? Do you not? And see, that's what it goes back to, is the Word. Amen. Now, this guy was a pastor. That means if he ever taught on this, I have no idea what he would be telling his congregation. So how many of them are just going to accept what he says and not accept what the Word of God says, and yet they go out there and think, well, you don't want to mess with demons. Okay, so then what's the solution? Leave people tormented? Is that what we do? We just completely ignore the situation? No. When Jesus said, these signs shall follow... Them that believe. Okay, what is it we have to believe? The Word. The Word. These signs shall follow them that believe. We believe the Word. Now, I want you to turn over. Let's go back to, um, let's go back to 1 Corinthians. For the sake of time, let's just go back to 1 Corinthians. When it comes to the whole aspect of studying Scripture, in Isaiah chapter 28, prophetically, God spoke, you know, whom does God teach doctrine? And he goes on to explain line upon line, precept upon precept. Everything has to be line upon line, precept upon precept, meaning it has to be used in context. If you don't use the word in context, then you can come up with all kinds of crazy doctrine. The... Um, the whole aspect of line upon line, precept upon precept, has to do with keeping everything in order. One of the best things that's ever happened to us as far as Christians is to have the King James Bible, well, other Bibles too, as far as they're broken down in chapters and verses. That makes it easier to read. But the thing is, that's not how they were written. And so many times what we do with the chapters and the verses is 
we get kind of messed up as far as, well, when does the subject start and when does the subject end? I told you to turn to 1 Corinthians. I'll tell you what. Let's go somewhere else first. The Lord just is kind of reminding me of this. Go back to, um, go back to John chapter 8. John chapter 8. And what's happened here in John chapter 8, it says in verse 1, Jesus went unto the Mount of Olives, and in the early morning he came again into the temple. See that? He came into the temple. Now what happens after this? He's in there teaching them. That's what it says in verse 2. Well, the scribes and Pharisees, religious leaders, that bring this lady caught in the act of adultery, and they set her in the midst. In other words, they brought her up in front of everybody. And they said, this lady, now remember, he's in the temple. This is not where he is in the temple. It's not a small room like this. Okay, there are a lot of people there. And the religious leader said, well, you know, Jesus and the law of Moses, we're supposed to stone her. But what do you say? Now, they're trying to trap him in his words to discredit him. And he says, well, tell you what, he without sin, go ahead and cast the first stone. So these guys get to thinking about this, and one by one it says, you know, they walk away. So Jesus looks at her and he says, where are your accusers? In verse 10, has nobody condemned you? And she says, well, no, Lord. And Jesus says, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Now, here's what's interesting. According to the law, yeah, she was supposed to be stoned. And so Jesus said, well, go ahead then. If you're without sin, cast a stone. Well, they realized they couldn't do it. And so Jesus says, if anybody was in a position to condemn, it would have been Jesus, the, the Son of God, Word of God, sinless Jesus. And he says, well, you know what? Neither do I condemn you. Now, you can really teach a lot on this one, but basically the woman was already condemned. She's lost. She does not have the life of God. She's already condemned to hell. Jesus came not to condemn, but to save. And so he says, neither do I condemn you. You know, go and sin no more. In other words, lady, don't be messing around anymore. No more adultery, okay? That's it. Well, then, verse 12, Jesus spake again unto them. Unto who? The people there in the temple. The people that were there listening. And if you jump over to, um, he continues this. And uh, let's just jump down to verse 55. He says, you have not known him, you have not known God, uh, but I know him. And if I should say, I know him not, I shall be a liar like unto you. And this is the passage where he tells the religious leaders, you're of your father the devil. It doesn't mean that, God, that Satan spawned them. What it means is you share in that lost sin nature as Satan himself, and basically you're so influenced by him that you're delivering the junk that he wants you to deliver, twisting the word of God and staying true to what God established in the law through Moses. Well, he says, um, you know, if I deny him, say I don't know him, I'll be a liar like unto you, but I know him and keep his saying. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my days. He saw it and was glad. Then said the Jews unto him, Thou art yet fifty years old, and thou hast seen Abraham. And Jesus says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, before Abraham was, I am. Do you, do you know what he's doing right there? He's telling them, I am one with God. Remember Moses? He says, Who am I going to say sent me? And God said, You tell him, I am, that I am sent you. Jesus says, Before, look at this, this is so cool, before Abraham was, I am. So, okay, that set them off. I mean, if they weren't mad before, they are furious now. And it says, they took up stones to cast at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple, 
going through the midst of them and so passing by. Verse 1 of chapter 9, and as Jesus passed by, see that? This is a continuation of the same event, the same day. And as Jesus passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. The disciples asked, who sinned, this man or his parents? Well, that's weird enough. Where did you get the idea that somebody could sin before they were born? Well, that's what, that was a teaching back in those days. The religious leaders would say, if you got a, a physical defect, either your parents sinned or you sinned in the womb before you were born. That's crazy. So here's this guy born blind, and we know the story. Jesus gave instructions for him to be um, healed, and he went and he did what Jesus told him about washing, and he got his vision. Well, then the religious leaders got all mad about that, and they said, who told you to go do this? And he said, well, this guy came and made the you know, mud on my eye, told me to go wash, and I could see. They'd say, yeah, but who was he? Who? And then it goes on and on, and finally, they get so mad, they excommunicate the guy out of the temple. I mean, it, even his parents were intimidated by this, and so Jesus... He says, um, it, look in verse 39. Now, you're going to have to go back and read all of this to get the continuity. What I'm trying to do is point out to you that a story that started in chapter 8, verse 1, is continuing through all of chapter 8, all of chapter 9. It goes all the way into chapter 10. Jesus says in uh, chapter 41, If you were blind, you should, talking to the Pharisees, you'd have no sin, but now you say, We see, therefore your sin remaineth. Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that entereth not by the door into the sheepfold, but climbeth up some other way, the same as a thief and a robber. What he's talking about here, he's identifying the erroneous doctrine that the Pharisees and religious leaders were identifying, and he goes on to share, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody enters in, nobody gains access to the Father but by me. And if you jump all the way to the end of chapter 10, verse 42, it says, And many believed on him, where? There. Chapters 8, 9, and 10 are one continual story. So what happens is when we read the continual flow of this, we get a better idea of exactly what was happening and what Jesus was talking about. This goes back to the line upon line, precept upon precept. It wasn't just that Jesus dealt with this lady who was caught in the act of adultery. This is one big long day in the life of Jesus because chapter 11 starts out, now a certain man was sick named Lazarus. In other words, now we see a change and a shift of the dialogue into a whole different story. Now look over, go ahead and turn back over to 1 Corinthians chapter 14. What I'm trying to do here this morning is help you see that when it comes to understanding, um, say, meditating in Scripture, because I was told when I was a kid growing up, well, you got to study the Bible. Well, that's great, but how do you do that? Well, line upon line, precept upon precept. You find the beginning of a subject, you find the end of a subject, and then you understand that there is a flow. And sadly, sometimes that flow is broken up into chapters. And we miss this. Well, in this, um, in this book of 1 Corinthians, go to chapter 12. Paul, in chapter 11, real briefly, Paul is talking about um, order uh, in the Lord's Supper, communion, just to keep it really simple. But then we pick it up in chapter 12, verse 1. And he says, now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I would not have you ignorant. In other words, he's saying, I don't want you to remain ignorant about the operation of the Holy Spirit and the gifts of the Spirit. He's saying, um, you're ignorant now, but I want to bring about a correction in this. So he begins teaching about the gifts of the Spirit. And he goes all the way through to go ahead and look at verse uh, 31. He says, but covet earnestly the best gifts, and yet I show you a more excellent way. Chapter 13, 
Though I speak with the tongues of men and angels and have not charity, that word charity could have been interpreted the love of God in action. I am become as a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. So chapter 12, he's talking about the gifts of the Spirit and the unity of the body of Christ and how the gifts fit into the unity of the body of Christ. But chapter 13 is not starting another subject. Chapter 13 is a continuation of what he began in chapter 12. Because he says, though I speak with tongues. Well, what did he just get done teaching about? He was teaching in part about tongues. And he, what he's saying here in chapter 13, in essence, is this. You know, you can see the gifts in operation, but if you're not living daily by the love of God in operation, then you know what? All of your speech and any of the manifestation of the gifts, it's not God lending his stamp of approval of everything that you do and how you act because he's already established in chapters one and three, there's a tremendous amount of division in, the, in uh, that particular church. Chapter 11, he brings about even more division within that church. And so he's saying the operation of the gifts is not God saying, hey, everything you do, say, act, is right before me. No, he's saying, look, if you don't have God's love in operation and being demonstrated in your life, then you know what? The operation of the gifts of the Spirit is just that. It's an operation, a manifestation of the gifts of the Spirit to magnify God and what He's doing, not to magnify and exalt you. So he continues here in chapter 13, and he goes, look at the end of chapter 13, verse 13. He says, And now abideth faith, hope, charity, these three, but... The greatest of these is charity. Chapter 14, verse 1, follow after charity and desire spiritual gifts, but rather that you may prophesy. prophesy. So what we see then is chapter 14 is a continuation of what actually began in chapter 12, verse 1. He's still talking about the operation of the gifts. He's still talking about the manifestation of the Holy Spirit. In chapter 14, he goes into more detail about the operation of tongues and about the power of praying in tongues. And he even makes reference to Isaiah chapter 28 because in uh, 1 Corinthians 14, 21, he says, In the law it is written with, and you see that those two words, men of? That should not be in there because that is not what was in, the, uh, in Isaiah 28. Uh, uh, 1 Corinthians 14, 21 is a reference to what God prophesied in Isaiah chapter 28. And what this is supposed to say is, in, in uh, 1 Corinthians 14, 21, In the law it is written, With other tongues and other lips will I speak unto this people, and yet for all that will they not hear me, saith the Lord. In other words, God is saying, You want to you hear me. All right? you, wanna, you want me to speak to you. Here's what you do. Just sit down and pray in tongues. Because as you sit down and pray in tongues, you need to understand that language is coming from me through you, and I'm giving you the words of this language. This is how I will communicate with you. I will speak to you spirit to spirit, which is exactly what Paul said in verse 14. If I pray in an unknown tongue, my spirit is praying. So my spirit, my born-again spirit, is interacting with God in this prayer. And he's saying here in verse 21, look, this was a prophecy. Way back Isaiah said with other tongues and other lips, I'll speak to this people. And he said, in spite of the fact that God has said this is what he will do, people still don't understand it. They still won't receive it. What he's actually doing is pointing out to the Corinthians, you guys think that you're so advanced and so far into God simply because some of the gifts are in operation when you guys aren't even spending time praying in tongues. 
because he even goes on to say, I, in this passage here, he says, verse 18, I think, my God, I speak with tongues more than y'all. He's not talking about speaking with tongues for interpretation. He's talking about, I'm spending time praying in times more than all of you people together because there's so much division within your church. If you guys were truly praying in the Spirit the way that you should be praying in the Spirit, you would not have all this division in doctrine because Jesus even said that the Holy Spirit would come and he would teach us all things. He would lead and guide us into all truth. How in the world is he going to do that? As I pray in tongues, he begins to put the pieces together. He begins to help me understand the line upon line, the precept upon precept. He begins to guide and direct me as to where a subject starts and where a subject ends so that I can feast on the Word of God to the point that I am built up to a place where God can begin to move through me in power, in authority, in glory. I begin to see that spiritual outpouring in my own life. I begin to see that own personal revival if you will. And this is what we need as the body of Christ so that God can use us in this outpouring so that no longer are we intimidated. I mean, think of what happened with Jesus. It got to the point where people would come to him and they wanted him to minister to them for prayer. Remember the story uh, we heard in Sunday school this morning about uh, the, the handkerchiefs that went out from Paul's body? Well, if you go back and you read the story of the lady that had the issue of blood, she said, if I can just touch his garment, if I can just touch the hem of his garment, I can just grab his clothes, I'll be healed. If you keep reading, what you're going to find is from that point on, there were people thronging to Jesus for no other reason than to touch his clothing so that they could be healed. That story went out. Jesus didn't have to tell people, hey folks, listen, if you just touch my clothes, you're going to be healed. No, the reputation went out as to what happened and now people are, they just want to touch his clothes so they can be healed. That's all they wanted. That's supposed to be us looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. This is, this is our potential when we see Jesus. Jesus is the Word made flesh. So the more that we get into the Word, the more we spend time with the Holy Spirit is the more that anointing begins to build up. And we don't have to go around bragging about what we believe. We live what we believe and things begin to happen. We see the outpouring. We see the revival. But it all goes back to the foundation of the Word of God. Yes. Praise the Lord. God's Word it's never going to pass away. There is no error in this book. Now, I know science will sometimes tell us, well, you know, but you can't believe this and you can't believe that. There is no error in this book. None. If the Bible says Jesus walked on water, he did. If the Bible says Peter walked on water, he did. If the Bible says the dead can be raised, the dead can be raised. That's just the way it is. But the more we get into this is the more the life of the Word joins with the life of our spirit. And faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word. So if the Word's not being sown in us, how can we say that we truly have the faith that we need for revival? Glory to God.